Yes, it's Joe Walsh. It's like your favorite station. Hey, y'all, this is Kristen Casey, author of Rock Monster, My Life with Joe Walsh. Just like they do on the radio. And you are listening to Joe K on the Play That Rock and Roll podcast. Now it's all about the podcast, and I'm telling you, Joe K is one of the best. This is not a test. This is Play That Rock and Roll Podcast Edition. I'm your host, Joseph K., and like the song at the start says, just call me Joe. Speaking of Joe, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. And I'm doing great because for the first time, it's not just me today. That's right. Play That Rock and Roll is pleased to announce our first ever guest. Today is our first ever interview, and that was with Kristen Casey, author of Rock Monster, My Life with Joe Walsh. If you're familiar with this show, you know I'm a huge fan of Joe Walsh. Uh, I did a podcast, a two-part podcast about Joe earlier this year, and in that podcast I discussed Kristen's book uh, quite a bit. If you're not familiar, Rock Monster was released originally in 2018, and paperback copies are being released this month. Uh, signed copies are available too, I might add. Kristen was Joe's girlfriend from the late 80s to the mid 90s. If you remember my podcasts about Joe, or if you're a Joe Walsh fan, you probably know that those are the years that are the least written about when it comes to his career. And there's a simple explanation for that. Those years were basically commercial and personal low points for him. Not only were his records not selling, but his addictions to drugs and alcohol were spiraling completely out of control. Well, as fate would have it, Kristen was there for all of it, and she put together a fantastic account uh, of her story, and it is a great window into a point in Joe's life and career that we as fans don't have a lot of access to. I originally got the book last year as a Christmas gift, and it was the first nonfiction book that I read this year. And when I read the book, I hadn't even launched this podcast. I was still in the process of figuring out what exactly I wanted this to be. But as soon as I finished the book, I did know I definitely wanted to talk to Kristen about it because it is a very interesting read and I had a lot of questions. After I read the book, uh, I posted a review of it on Twitter and I sent it to her. She saw it, uh, messaged me saying that she appreciated it. And over the next couple of months, we went back and forth a couple of times on social media. She provided me some great information that I did end up using 
in my Joe Walsh uh, podcast episode. And since the paperback edition of her book has just been released this month, I thought it would be a great opportunity to see if she would be interested in coming on the show uh, to talk about it. And much to my delight, she agreed. And, and I couldn't be happier to present her as the debut guest of Play That Rock and Roll. We had a fantastic conversation and we talked about all kinds of interesting stuff. So if you're a rock fan or a Joe Walsh fan, I really hope you hang out to listen to what we talk about. Among the stuff we discuss is Joe's infamous sidekick, uh, Rick the Bass Player, Rick Roses. We talk about this album, Got Any Gum. We talk about Joe's long forgotten attempt at a super group, which was called The Best. We talk about the Eagles uh, attempting to reunite in 1990, and we talk about their proper Hell Freezes Over reunion in 1994. Beyond the music, we also talk about what it's like being a non-celebrity in a celebrity world. Her stories of being backstage at Eagles concerts and at all sorts of VIP parties, really interesting stuff. And in the later half of the interview, we talk about one of the most complicated topics in all of rock and roll underage groupies. Kristen was never a groupie, but she has some very interesting insight to that topic, and I thought she brought up some great points. So just a heads up on that, but I think it was a really good conversation all the way through. We cover a lot of great stuff, and to be honest, the whole ordeal was a best case scenario for me. I originally planned to only talk to her for about an hour, but that hour came and went real quick. And after we hit the hour mark, I realized I had all sorts of questions left over for her. So she very graciously agreed to hang out for another hour and, and, and honestly, even more than that. And the good news there is that that means that this interview is actually a two-parter. Today is just part one. I'll have the second half of our discussion up sometime next week. So in short, I can't thank her enough. We had two great hours of conversation, covered all kinds of great topics, and like I said, it was a best case scenario uh, for the debut interview uh, for Play That Rock and Roll. Now, if you want to learn more about Kristen, I would point you to her website, which is kristencasey.com. You can find her social media pages there. I know she's Ms. Kristen Casey on Twitter. And you can follow her on Facebook, too. You can also find her writings on her website. You can find information about her profession as an intimacy coach on her website. We talk uh, more about that in the second uh, interview that I'll be posting next week. And most importantly of all, you can find out how to buy her book on her website, which, again, is available now in paperback and signed copies are also available and if you're interested in signed copies you should really jump on those now because you never really know just how long those will be available and finally just one quick note uh, about a little hiccup we had with the audio I recorded this podcast on a webcam a brand new webcam that a number of YouTube tutorials told me had a great mic on it well guess what the mic sucked so Kristen's audio sounds great, but my audio on this webcam uh, sounded like I was underwater. So in an effort to fix that, I replaced the audio of my questions with audio I pulled from my camcorder recording, which I had going as a backup. 
my audio isn't perfect now, but it sounds better than it did. And I only bring this up because if you're listening closely, you'll probably notice a fluctuation in the sound between my questions and Kristen's answers. Not the biggest deal, but it does frustrate me on my end and I just wanted to give you a heads up about it. I will sort this audio thing out sooner than later. The important thing is, is that Kristen's audio sounded just fine. There's a slight issue with mine, but you can just tune me out and pay attention to her because her words are what's important here. So without further ado, let's dive in to the debut interview for Play That Rock and Roll, which was my discussion with Kristen Casey, author of Rock Monster, My Life with Joe Walsh. This book is, see, it sounds like a, a real big hit on, uh, I hope this isn't uh, a disrespectful term, but like the recovery circuit. Like there's a, oh, yeah. you know, and a lot of, you know, you've had a, a lot of great discussions about, you know, addiction and survival and recovery and all that good stuff. I will tell you that uh, I do have some questions about that for you, but I think uh, I will get in over my head really quickly <laughs> if I if I ask too many questions. So this will probably be, you know, more about, you know, the, the lighter aspects of the book, you know. Um, but, you know, hopefully we can get to some of the heavier topics, too. I just hope I don't put my foot in my mouth when I ask. Oh, I'm sure you won't. I'm sure you won't. I mean, um, that's the thing about this book and, and always has been. It, don't, it really has two audiences. And there's definitely some overlap between, you know, the rock and roll scene and the recover, addiction recovery um, world. Uh <laughs> almost by default, you know, there's, there's some overlap there, but um, most of the podcasts I've done are probably recovery oriented. I think probably just because I found more of those to reach out to. Um, and my, the impetus to write the book was more to share my story of addiction than anything else, you know? Um, but I did also want to share what it's like behind the scenes because it's not what everyone thinks it is, you know, in the rock and roll scene. So um some of my interviews are very recovery um, centric, very, you know, very much about addiction and, and, it, and, you know, it's not the funnest topic, uh, right. especially if you're not an addict, you know, and that's what you, and you didn't read the book for that. It can be a downer. <laughs> well, it, it, it's a window into like, uh, like what that life really is. And it, it helps an understanding. And it, I think it's good. I think it would be good for people who, you know, don't struggle with addiction to read it because it's a window into something that they might be judgmental about, you know, and that certainly breaks all that down because, man, the later chapters of this book I, were so gripping. I, I genuinely felt like somehow this was like a posthumous release. <laughs> yeah. sure I, I, actually I couldn't believe you pulled through, and, and, and thank God for, you know, the, the, the ending, though, you, it's a very sweet ending. I won't ruin it, but, like, you know your story of getting out and the closure that you 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 get at the end of the book is 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 very the relief is great you know hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes she loves them now if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of raycons 
Yeah. Even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Um, when I, when I read the book, the only one, the only story that it sort of reminded me to, and I don't want to compare because they're definitely different stories, but I read Mackenzie Phillips's uh, High on Arrival about 10 years ago, excuse me, about five years ago. She put it out about 10 years ago. And did you, did you read that book? Oh, yes. That is one of my favorites. That is such an intense story too. Did you... So this is like, when you were putting this book together, did you talk to or contact authors like, like Mackenzie or, and again, this isn't a good comp, but I, I think of her because there are some parallels with your story, uh, Pamela DeBar, I'm with the band. D did, you, did you have any contact with authors who put together memoirs or stories like this uh, to give you guidance? Um, yeah, to, to some degree, not a large degree. Um, I would say the ones that I've, that I, uh, well, the one that I was the most in contact with was an incredible writer and woman named Sarah Catherine Lewis. And she um, doesn't have anything to do with the rock and roll world, but she wrote, uh, uh, she's a former stripper and um, uh, addict. And she wrote a book that had a lot to do with her, um, with that part of her life. And she came through town and we met and we just really connected. We both had blogs at the time. We both had stripper blogs at the time. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, she seems to have sort of disappeared and I'm not sure where she went. So if anyone watching this um, knows where Sarah Catherine Lewis is, please um, uh, let me know. And, and I'd love to be back in touch with her. Um, you know, I read a ton of addiction memoirs and also I love, you know, all sex worker memoirs, strippers and escorts. Oh, yeah. um, so uh, there was a, um, Jenny Ketchum has a wonderful one. She was a porn actress. Um, uh, and I wasn't in touch with her or Antonia Crane. Um, Antonia, Antonia Crane has a, another wonderful book. Um, a little like Sarah Catherine Lewis's, um, as far as the rock and roll world, um, Pamela DeBars, I was in touch with, and she so graciously, um, wrote a wonderful blurb for my book jacket. We had the same, um, agent, uh, Peter oh. Wiegand. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, I, when I first read Pamela's I'm with the band, it's funny to me now that I, I, I actually have a blurb on my book. I mean, if you'd have told me then 
that I was actually going to write a book and that, you know, the amazing Miss Pamela was going to write a blurb. I just, I would have said, okay, well then I can die happy. You know, now I have no worries in life because that's, I was so impressed. She was so groundbreaking with what she did. She, the way she owns her sexuality and just has no, and she got all kinds of hell for it from, you know, a lot of pearl clutching people out there who don't understand, you know, uh, what groupie dumb is or can be or the way you know she expressed it and then when the book came out she um i i got in touch with uh, um, women who actually got in touch with me were um, connected to her some women who'd had um, rock and roll flings or relationships um and uh so we've all connected on facebook and and um Oh, uh, uh, who's that guy from the Partridge family? Uh, Bonaducci. Bonaducci. I I did it. His uh, ex-wife. She and I had a lot of similarities. What's her name? I I don't know her name, but I I know Danny is a pretty intense fellow. Yes. (laughs) And yeah, so, you know, she really (laughs) understood. She and I are very different women, and I feel terrible for going blank on her name right now because her book's really interesting and and very good. But, But the main similarity was that our partners were very intense, out of control addicts. She was not one. She had like a codependent kind of thing, you know. She was always trying to manage him and his craziness. And so there were a lot of similarities. Um, trying to think of the other, uh, uh, any, any rock and roll uh, chicks that I, that wrote memoirs. I'm probably forgetting some. Um, Amy Dresner, she, she wasn't a rock and roll chick. She was a, she's a wonderful memoirist. She wrote My Fair Junkie. Um, we got in touch um, as well, uh, right after her book came out, right before mine came out. So a handful, like half a dozen of them. Yeah, and it's been great because you kind of feel alone in this world when you have that experience. Um, and I'm not a super social extroverted person. And so uh, Pamela's group of um, ladies that she's, she wrote a book where that some of them contributed stories. Um, right, yeah. You know, their own personal stories. I, I can't think of the name of that one either right Is now. That, let's spend the night together? Yes. Okay. Yes. So they get together every year or, you know, not this year because of the pandemic. Oh. But um, so they've invited me out to the next get together. We might be doing it online this year. I don't know. So hopefully I'll be meeting some of those ladies in person because they're fantastic and they just get me and they get what it's like. Yeah, she still seems to be like the queen of maybe not the groupies anymore but definitely has uh a very strong following and and a, and a close circle I, I i i have a lot of admiration for her as well you know yeah. so it was yeah, she, she wrote an article she wrote a couple articles recently in um it's an online magazine called um please kill me yeah. which um it's absolutely worth going there and reading them um she details uh you know more of her relationships and it, it her you know, they're just fantastic and fascinating. Good stuff. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's dive into your book, and, I, and I'll go through it sort of, sort of pseudo-chronologically. You first came into Joe Walsh's life in 1987, right? 88. 88. Okay. So you, you met him in 88, and you met him through uh, Rick Rose's girlfriend? Yeah, I mean, loosely, I would call her his girlfriend. Okay. I mean, Rick 
as long as I knew Rick, I, I never knew him until much later in life, shortly before he died a few years back, yeah. um, to have one girlfriend. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> he had, you know, he had, um, usually when I would see him with the woman, it would be the same woman for, you know, six months, depending on what city we were in, you know, oh, okay. <laughs> like he might, I, there might be two women he was seeing simultaneously, but yeah, he moved around a lot. But my friend Vicky that I worked with in Austin at Sugars, we stripped together. She was an amazing woman, still is an amazing woman. And she's kind of a role model for me. She was a few years older and she was a real rocker chick. She was from Detroit. She'd been going, you know, getting backstage for years. Um, I wouldn't call her a groupie, but she loved rock and roll. Like she knew the music. She was all about the music. And she turned me on to a lot of rock and roll, like, you know, Peter Frampton and Ted Nugent. And, you know, because I was 18 when I met her and I didn't really fit in with the other strippers. Um, but I, but I, I fit in with Vicky. And so, you know, we'd hang out after work and go to her place at two in the morning. And from two to four, she would just be playing me like the best seventies rock that okay. I you know, and like schooling me kind of, you know, yeah. in rock and roll history, whatever. And, um, and at some point she had met Rick and Joe when they came through town, like probably in 87 um, at an autograph signing party at a record store here in Austin. And she and Rick just immediately hit it off and kind of started dating. And all I knew at the time, you know, when I'm at work, I'm really busy. I, she said something about dating this bass player. She may have mentioned he played with Joe Walsh, but the name meant nothing to me. So if she mentioned it, it went in one ear and out the other. And then one day, a few months into this, she says, oh, so the guys are in town. Take me to the hotel after work if you could. I need a ride. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And um, I actually, uh, at the last minute, decided the guy I was seeing kind of casually was getting too serious and I needed to go break up with him that night. So I tried to get out of taking her to the hotel. And she's like, no, no. She literally pulled this guy out of my car in the parking lot. She's like, you yeah. promised me a ride. And thank God she did that. So on the way to the hotel, she's like, you know, so, you know, when you drop me off, park the car, come in. I want you to meet um, my bass player's, you know, friend, the singer, guitar player. I think you guys will hit it off. So it was, I think, kind of a, you know, subversive fix up. She waited sure. till I was in the car. Um, and I was like, I don't want to meet anybody, but, you know, why not? Yeah, he'll probably be interesting. I, I figured he was some... I liked older men, but I figured he was some kind of one-hit wonder from the 70s, but still, oh. I'd meet him and and then, uh, you know, probably, you know, fake a yawn and go home 15 minutes later. And um, 15 minutes later, I was, you know, this close to being in love and really, uh, I, I mean, within 20 minutes, I was... I thought, I'm, I've met the man I'm going to marry. I was really in love, and I stayed till like, 8 in the morning. And, um, uh, and then the next day, went to the concert that they were playing, and that's when I started, when I realized who he was, because I started recognizing every single song he played. And I was just like, holy, I had no idea that he was that famous or that, you know, prolific. And um, so, no, I'd fallen in love with him thinking he was just some one hit wonder from the 70s. That's funny. Yeah, I've seen Joe in concert uh, a handful of times. And, you know, it's, he's one of those, he's one of those guys where like every song I've heard on the radio, you know, it's just, he's just got such a catalog of, of great hits. Uh, but before before we talk about Joe, let's let I want to circle back to uh, to Rick a little bit because I, I feel like you, Rick Rick the bass player gets mentioned a whole bunch of times along with Joe, but like I haven't read any profiles of him ever, and I and I think he now that he's gone, he's sort of underappreciated at least in rock history. What 
do you remember about Rick as far as his personality went and how his friendship uh, with Joe was like? I'm so glad you asked, first of all. Thank you for that. Because I tell you, and anyone who knows or knew Rick will say this, he was a very special person. Th this world was a better place with him in it, and I, I will never not miss him. And I know Joe feels the same. They had an incredibly close relationship, and it was such a beautiful thing. I, I, I feel like in some ways Rick was probably more important in Joe's life than I was. Oh. Or, or, or more important, well, certainly more important to his work, but, but, but more of a stabilizing factor. Rick was a very chill guy. And, you know, Joe was always, um, he always had to be on. You know, he sort of had to be, whether he was on stage or doing interviews or, you know, he was the guy in charge. Everyone in our circle basically worked for him, even his good friends like Joe Vitale, his drummer, and, and yeah. Rick, the bass player. Um, but basically everyone was on his payroll. And um, yet Rick and him had such a genuine friendship. I mean, and, and Joe noticeably just relaxed around him. And, and Rick just sort of organically brought out Joe's, you know, funny side not where he was like trying to be funny just where he you know they just kind of played off each other because rick was really so much the straight man um and he was yeah i think that it was just a really important friendship and um also he was one hell of a solid bass player you oh, know sure, i mean yeah. and yeah like my musician friends all like he's just very very solid you know i mean neil he wouldn't have played with neil young for as long as he did if he wasn't an amazing bass player right yeah yeah, and he's rhythm a great section gets no guy. respect. <laughs> What's that? I said rhythm section gets no respect. Oh, I know, I know, right? <laughs> uh, bass players are always they hold the band together. Yeah, and yet they don't get you know a lot of uh, they don't get all the attention and accolades. But um, but I'll tell you, Rick was hilarious. We spent more time in that guy's garage just like laughing my my butt off. I loved him, and in fact, shortly before he died, which I want to say was maybe four or five years ago, somewhere in there. Yeah. We could talk. Do you I remember? have to look it up. I think 2014, but I could be. Yeah, that, that's, on that. yeah that, that sounds about right. We would talk every couple of years. Um, and he was actually seeing someone in Austin, um, but he had a girlfriend in LA and um, it was, it was very complicated. So he was coming out here once in a while and uh, we never could connect. And our last conversation was like, yeah, next time you're out here, we got to get together. And then just very soon after that, he died. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's cool that you, guys, that you guys stayed in touch. I remember watching a uh, Joe on uh, Howard Stern show a couple of years, well, actually more than a couple of years ago now. And he was talking about um, coming out of ad addiction. One of the things you have to do is basically cut all the toxic people out of your life, all the enablers. Uh, all the people that get you into trouble, and that was why he hadn't gone on Howard Stern show in like 20 years or whatever it was. And they asked about Rick, and Joe said Rick was exempt. You know, he stayed in touch with Rick. You know, he didn't cut him out for whatever reason. So, yeah, I just wanted to know a little bit more. So it sounds like you and Rick got along really well too. Yeah, and it's a good thing. I mean, I I, I never had a crossword with him. I never had a negative thought about him. Um, I would have to assume he probably, I don't think he ever thought poorly of me. I think that there were, were probably times that he 
thought Joe and I might be better off apart because we, you know, when things were getting so bad, we were fighting all the time, but I never felt anything but, you know, love from him. And, uh, you know, he was as much, unless Joe and I were actively being intimate, you know, Rick had carte blanche. He was, he was, it was almost like a threesome, you know, like a non-sexual threesome. Like he was over so often. He, when we bought our house in Studio City, he lived as the crow flies, like a mile. And so the guys got some, um, this was before texting um, or, you know, anyone had computers uh, or at least, you know, the internet as we know it. And so Joe got a couple of CB radios and um, the guys would just communicate literally on CB radios just whenever they <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, he was a very major part of our life and I loved having him around and he was, you know, he was a real practical joker, but, it, but never in a way that was offensive or anything like that. I just really loved the guy. Yeah, that's great. Did you ever meet Neil Young? Yes. Yeah. Um, I met him in New Zealand. We hung out a few times. Um, uh, I don't recall Neil being personable with me whatsoever. Um, <laughs> Neil is to me seemed much more comfortable being the center of attention than Joe did. And I think oh. Joe appreciated that because whenever the three of us, whenever the two of them were in a room, I noticed that Joe seemed much more relaxed because most of the focus was on Neil because he was just very comfortable being the center of attention. But he, it wasn't like he was one of those celebrities who was super gracious and like, um, you know, like Pete Townsend, if, if we would bump into Pete, he would go out of his way to come over and give me a big hug. You know, so would Ringo um, ask me how I'm doing, like genuinely want to know, how are you doing? How's your sister? Blah, blah, blah. Whereas Neil, I mean, even the third time that we hung out in the span of like a few weeks in New Zealand, if someone had asked him my name, he might've been like, um, I, I, right. that's Joe's girl, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's what he would have said. That's yeah. yeah, interesting. Okay, so when you got together with Joe, he was just coming off of this album, Got Any Gum, part of my vinyl collection. Uh, was he, I think he was still promoting it in 88. Did he, do you remember him talking about the album at all? Was he excited about it? Or did you, when, when, when you and him got together was like the writing on the wall that this didn't sell very well? I did meet him on that tour. Um, you know, I don't know if he played, I don't remember if the concert I saw him at, it was a festival. So there were like six people on the bill that oh, day. Okay. So he probably just played his classics. I probably went out and got that record right afterwards, but I, I bought all of his, I bought everything I could find. And that was not one that I listened to as much as the others. Sure. You know, I was much more into, um, you know, his stuff from the Barnstorm and James Gang and, oh, yeah. and, um, and Stella's stuff, you know, I, that was really my thing. But I do remember him enjoying playing when he would play like the radio song. And like, I think he liked, you know, I don't know if he liked every song he did on that record, but um, yeah, I got the sense that he was, he was proud of some of it um, or proud of it to an extent. And we got together in May of that year of 88. By the time we really started spending time together again, um, what, which started probably like in August, you know, a few months later, like July or August or something. Mm. Um, I think the tour was winding down a little bit and I didn't know him very well. And Joe's not the kind of person who 
is super open with his feelings. You know, I mean, first, I'm Generation X, and men in my generation aren't, you know, uh, certainly nearly as much as like millennials, but Joe's a boomer, you know. I mean, he's oh, yeah. just, he was, and, and I, but I would watch him and get to know him, and so I could see signs, you know, that, that, um, the, the, the venues were smaller and smaller and, and um, you could, I picked up on the frustration. One thing I noticed from, I guess, this tour cycle in like 87, 88 is he gets booked on a lot of talk shows, Letterman and Arsenio, and they always mention this album, but he never talks about it and he never plays any of the music for it in the, in, in the performance section. He always plays a, something he's probably a little more comfortable with, like Rocky Mountain Way, Life in the Fast Lane. And maybe I'm reading too deep into it, but that always gave me the impression that he wasn't totally confident behind the music on this one. Well, I think, I mean, I think, yeah, he knows, any artist, I think really, most artists know their best work, you know, I mean, yeah. I, um, and they, you know, and again, Joe wanted to please his fans. And if they want to hear Rocky Mountain Way versus the radio song, I mean, he's gonna, he's gonna play that. Yeah. Hey, you, but maybe he doesn't hate it. Cause I will say, listen, you know, he's got that radio show now on, uh, uh, 88.5 in California. And he did play the radio song this past Saturday. So it, it can't, you know, he, he, I think he, has a soft spot for it somewhere. Well, he should. I mean, I actually, I like that song. And in fact, it, it grows on me every time I hear it. I think I like it a little bit more than, than I, I did before. And in fact, I always thought for all three of those albums, that one, Ordinary Average Guy and Songs for Dying Planet, I thought I could see some of Joe's um, songwriting talent and, and I could see the... Um, potential in a lot of those songs that maybe could have used like different arrangements or a better producer, somebody who would get him, you know, back into that funky rock groove versus, you know, the other thing is the way the 60, the fifties and sixties rock and roll sort of segued into, you know, seventies rock and, and, you know, sort of psychedelic. And um, it was almost sort of seamless. You could see the progression and the influences, but then you get to the eighties and you know, a lot of soul just sort of got lost. And so he was, you know, I think the cocaine probably had an effect on his creative output, but I also think a lot of the music that was coming out at that time, a lot of synthesizers and stuff, yeah. you know, I think that was influencing him in a negative way. And I feel like if he'd have been writing some of those songs at a different time period, yeah. they would have had, you know, slightly different arrangements and maybe come out more in that Joe Walsh style that we all know and love. Yeah. I think you're onto something. The eighties are interesting because the eighties were really good to a lot of artists from the sixties. A lot of sixties artists had comeback hits in the eighties, but the eighties were also absolutely brutal to a lot of seventies acts. Like, 1980 came, and they just crashed right into it and couldn't make the jump. Yeah. Um, and I think Joe sort of had mixed results, because, like, his early 80s stuff is some of my absolute favorites, you know, even more than, you know, Barnstorm and um, his more critically favorited stuff. Yeah. Okay. So, in 1990, this is, this is one of those things where, why I love your book so much is it's such a window 
into the aspects of Joe's life that aren't really written about anywhere else. I knew about his tour with the band The Best in, in Japan, but I know nobody else I knew knew about it, and I didn't know much about it, uh, and I still really don't. Uh, but your, your stories of like what the, that show was like was so interesting to me because it's something that isn't written about anywhere else. Um, and so, of course, I, I feel I got to ask about it. What was that tour all about? How did you enjoy it? And uh, were, 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 was that supposed to go beyond just the dates in Japan and Hawaii? Or was it a sort of a one-off deal? No, I think it was supposed to continue. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I'm not 100% clear on why it didn't. Um, again, Joe didn't, you know... And I didn't ask. I mean, I'm sure if I'd have asked, he would have told me. Um, or maybe I asked and he didn't get too deep into it. And I was the kind of person who's like, you know, I'm not going to push. Um, but, no, I think the plan was to, you know, keep it going. Maybe he was sort of inspired by what Ringo had been doing. And, um, you know, I, all the guys were very excited about it. I remember rehearsals, you know, all the guys being super excited about it. Um, uh so I don't know. I, I don't know what combination of factors or any major factors that just kind of caused it to fall apart once they got back. Um, but yeah, what I remember of that tour, unfortunately, is a little choppy because I was drinking heavily. heavily. Yes. <laughs> I, well, I was going to say, my memory of seeing some of those videos of the best on YouTube is like, I've seen a lot of videos of Joe, and I've definitely seen him perform pretty intoxicated. But when I think of the performances or appearances that he is the drunkest that I've ever seen, it's those videos. And I, and I sort of thought like, oh, maybe that was where some of the trouble started. Well, I tell you, there, there's definitely a reason for that, or at least one of the reasons for that, which was that um, in the States, uh, you know, Joe was a coke addict, as right. I had become by then, um, and we could get coke anywhere we wanted in the States. Oh. When we left the country, we could not. And so what happens as a, most addicts will tell you, if you can't get your drug of choice, you're going to compensate with something you're that's the nature of addiction it's not like you're going to choose to do oh. that i didn't choose to drink twice as i was a heavy drinker to begin with i didn't choose to drink twice as much in japan i just my body was craving it because i could get coke so um you know i think that's what the same thing was happening with joe um he didn't have any cocaine when we were in Japan. If he did, he I don't know where he got it, and it would have been a, an incredibly small amount. But I mean, as bad of an addict as he was, he wasn't insane. He would not have been looking to score coke in Japan. Even <laughs> of all countries, that would not have been the all one right. who tried to do that. You know, so we were drinking a lot. We were fighting a lot. Um, uh, I remembered some of the concert. Some of the shows were. Um, I liked some parts of it, but I. My main my main memory is that I thought Keith Emerson's solo was too long.
Um, and and that it, that I got bored. I mean, they only did like five gigs or something. And, and by halfway through, I got bored. And in the last couple, I spent backstage. I think. I, I wrote, I'm so glad you brought that up because you you wrote that same thing about Emerson and in, in your book. And that was uh, I almost pulled that quote to ask you about because I like prog rock um, as a casual fan, you know. And I think that every music fan that isn't specifically a prog rock fan would say. God, that keyboard solo is too long on any prog song. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty great. I, I, I never have known if it was just me or not, and I've tried to watch the that tape. I found it online myself, and I. Okay. Um, uh, it was it was a while ago. It was probably when I was writing the book, and I don't remember if I made it all the way through. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, what, was were the rest of the guys in that group partying pretty hard with you guys, or was it like just Joe and I guess Entwistle? Uh, Joe and Entwistle. I don't remember. Um, I'm going blank on the singer's name, but I don't. I don't remember him ever being drunk. Simon, the drummer. I don't remember him. Um, you know, the brothers were there, if I recall. Um, the backup singers. They were not hardcore partiers. Um, who else? Skunk Baxter. I don't remember him. Uh, ever being drunk? No, with, with that nickname. Come on. <laughs> I know. Well, you know where that nickname came from is apparently he didn't used to like in the seventies used to bathe um, all that often, and so he would. Right. Uh, yeah. So that's where that came from. All I know is that I adored Skunk very much, and he was always uh, spring fresh. He, oh, good. <laughs> he okay. Never once smelled that. In fact, I remember Skunk as being. Um, uh, incredibly gentlemanly and very sweet and very thoughtful and um, especially in Japan in fact because he could see that I was drinking too much and that Joe and I were fighting and, and every day he would just you know kind of check on me see how I was doing he couldn't have been sweeter I adored him wow okay that's yeah sweet. yeah yeah skunk was a real sweetheart his parents were there they were lovely um, yeah so it was and I don't remember how much um, Entwistle drank before shows uh, but yeah and it, which might have been a lot. I just don't remember. Sure. Um, but de definitely. Uh, and, and, and I'd seen, I first met John um, at a party. When I first got together with Joe, we were in LA and we were at a party at um, Sean Carcian, who uh, worked at the limo company that we used. He was a good friend of Joe's. He's passed away now. But I met him at a party there and it was just him and I, John Entwistle and I in the kitchen. And I vaguely knew who he was. I think we'd been introduced, but he was wasted. <laughs> Oh. He was just beyond wasted, and he and he was and he kept talking to me, and I could only understand half of what he was saying, and I I couldn't tell if he was flirting with me or not because it was just the strangest conversation. But he was adorable, um, and when he wasn't drunk, he was actually quite shy and reserved, but sweet. I really liked John a lot. He was he was lovely. When he was drunk, he'd be really outgoing and silly. Um, and in Japan, our last night there, by he was again like ridiculously wasted, and he would go from like this very proper you know, quiet English guy to just like, you know, security was coming up to the room. Right. Repeatedly because he was being so loud. Yeah, that's funny. The ox in sort of a different way, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You were present at those uh, sort of botched Eagles reunion sessions, right? Yeah. It was just a couple of days, if I recall. Okay. So I guess this is sort of the lawyer portion of the show in case <laughs> Henley comes calling. So we'll just say allegedly across the board for everything we discuss, you know, settle down, Don. Uh, 
but that's that's another thing where like even in uh, the Eagles documentary, they they barely touch on on that little at, uh, attempt at a reunion. Do you remember when Joe got the news that they wanted to put it back together in 1990? I. Everything that I remember I put in the book and it was basically that we were, um, we were at the Bellage Hotel, okay. um, which was not far from Joe's penthouse in Westwood. And when we, you know, trashed the penthouse um, until the maid could get there, we'd move into the Bellage Hotel, which is now the London. <clears throat> and um, I was sleeping and Joe woke me up. And he's like, we got to go, we got to go. Like, that was the first I'd heard of it. Like he, Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Like, I think talks may have been going on for a while, but he just didn't want to get his hopes up or something. I don't think yeah. it was, I don't think he got one call and it was all of a sudden, get your ass there. I think, um, and, and plus I wasn't living with him yet at this time. So I was oh. on the road with him. You know, I, I had my place in Austin, so I'd go home for a week or two and then go with him for a week or two. So there might've been some talks going on when I wasn't with him. Um, and, uh, so I got to LA, we move into the Bellage and all of a sudden he's wakes me up as excited as can be. Like, I don't know if I'd ever seen him. The only time I probably had ever seen him that excited was when we were going to meet Ringo. And I remember that distinctly because at the time I'd known him for about a year and we had spent every minute of like the first half of that year joined at the hip in Australia, New Zealand. And when when Ringo put that band together and, and it was official and Joe was taking me to meet him, I'd never seen him more excited and nervous. And, and then um, again, a year later or so, when, when he took me to the, um, I want to say it was maybe SIR, whatever the rehearsal studio was, mm-hmm. um, he was very, very excited. And um, uh, I did read in Felder's book that, that apparently it, was supposed to have happened sooner, but Joe had missed some dates or something like that. So I I was surprised to read that just because I I hadn't been aware of it, but I may have been, and I've just forgotten, but I don't think so. I remember feeling like, Oh, this is brand new news. I'm waking up this morning. I'm yanked out of bed and I'm going, I'm going to meet all the Eagles. And of course, like you said, Glenn Fry wasn't there. Um, I will say that um, uh, Don Henley could not have been sweeter. It was the first time I had, I had met him as soon as he found out I was from Texas. He was, you know, we started comparing notes on Texas and he was just unbelievably sweet and gentlemanly and, and um, gracious. And of course, that's the thing about Henley is that on any given day, he could be like a total um, uh, pompous, you know, agitated, you know, um, barking jerk um, for no reason. Like he would just open the door that way. And then other times he would just be, you know, the greatest guy you could ever meet. Oh, sure. Whereas, yeah, whereas Glenn Fry was just always kind of a, you know, aloof and, a, and kind of a jerk um, th- that I remember. Of course, he, when I first met Glenn Fry, um, I was, you know, I was a crack addict. So I, putting that in context, um, maybe he had every right to be that way. <laughs> well, you know, if yours was the only account that described him like that, maybe, but I've read a lot of things that, yeah, you know, you're, right, you're pretty right. much in line with. And, and um, Felder and Timothy B. I had toured with Timothy B. And as part of Ringo's band, you know. So oh, I, you're right. I know you're right. Yeah. yeah. And he could not have been sweeter. I mean, he was when he found out. I that was um, 
that was when I met him because he wasn't in Ringo's first band. He was in Ringo's second band, I think. Yeah. So, that's yeah. So, the, so I met him at the recording studio when the Eagles were, got back together and, and he couldn't have been sweeter either. He found out I was a vegetarian. He started writing down all of his favorite um, vegetarian restaurants and even which dishes I should get at which, I mean, for the girlfriend of a rock star, you never know how others are going to treat you. You know, some will be yeah. a little careful because they don't know how long you're going to last. Others couldn't care less about you. You're just a, you know, you're just some chick who's in the way of, of them um, jamming with their buddy. And then others are just uh, unbelievably sweet, like, you know, uh, Townsend and, and John Candy and, and Rigo Starr. Um, Felder, I, I always adored. And I like the way, I like the way Joe was around Felder because, um, kind of like with Rick, he just seemed to really relax and be himself and just be, um, you know, uh, happy and comfortable around Felder and Rick the bass player more than anyone. Oh, that's great. So you read Felder's book. What did you think of it? It's been a while since I read it, but I mean, it was great. It was fascinating. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was sad uh, yes. what happened. I always felt like you know, a, a little bit of maturity or maybe a, a, a few therapy sessions. Who went, did, didn't Metallica get therapy? Didn't Metallica? <laughs> yes, I think that that's right. Yeah. I always, yeah. I always felt like if the Eagles had had a few group therapy sessions or something, they would oh, have, sure. they it would have saved them all a lot of heartache. Um, I just felt, yeah, I felt like it was terrible what had happened. I also felt like Felder more than anyone except maybe Joe saw the Eagles as a family and Joe was smart enough. It seemed to me Joe was smart enough to just, uh, he knew how to pick his battles and, you know, he just, he knew the only way to be in that band was, was to let the two dictators be right. dictators. Yeah. And, um, and Felder just wouldn't, allow that to happen and it was a losing battle and i think joe knew it i think timothy probably knew it yeah and and don i think that i think that there was the book came across to me that for felder it, he was hurt that suddenly it wasn't the family or the brotherhood that it used to be and he just um wouldn't let that go and it turned into this big thing what i heard through the grapevine i won't say from where was that when he wrote that book, it had a lot more juicy details in it. And um, he ended up getting paid a lot more money for what he took out. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, that wouldn't surprise me. Just because, like, I do know he got a settlement uh, when, when he finally settled all the legal stuff uh, with the rest of the guys. Uh, but I I'm love to read that book. Yeah, it, it, it was a fun book. Um, and I read part of it. Uh, when I did the my my this the part two of my Joe Walsh podcast, uh, because I think the saddest part, the most heartbreaking part of the book, is when Don Felder calls Joe after he got fired and says, "Hey man, they fired me. Uh, what do I do? Or what are we gonna do?" And and Joe, you know, is in this impossible position of like, "Why? Well, I, I don't have a say in this, you know," and you know. Felder has rage at Joe, and and it's just like, God, what an awful situation. And I think what you were saying earlier, some therapy sessions might have, you know, cooled some nerves. But it sounds like a lot of that was, you know, 
about money and you know there's not a lot of therapy that can fix money problems right that's true it's true and i that probably is definitely the saddest of all it's not not so much um i mean i think it was terribly sad that felder left the band because if i went to see the eagles um without felder it it would have been a noticeable vacuum um i just thought he was so integral to the to the eagles music that yeah. i loved but that that joe and he joe and his friendship suffered the way it did i i want to think that they're friends now i mean they that maybe they don't advertise it but that they've reconnected i mean joe's a really forgiving sort he's very non-confrontational you know and yeah. and and uh uh, that's just a very, very intricate part of his personality. I mean, that's one of his defining features is Joe's very uh, confrontation averse. And, oh, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. Well, not with you. Not with me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, I, I used to be very confrontation averse. I mean, I'm less so now. I'll, I'll be um, uh, confrontational when, when it's appropriate. But we were two non-confrontational people that would, you know, stuff stuff down and then it would blow up and right. then you get, you know, a thousand-fold confrontation that turned into, like, an actual violence. Yeah, that, that's, you know, but I know non-confrontational people will tell you that that's kind of what it's like. I mean, I know a lot of Canadians that are the sweetest people in the world and then, like, every 10 years they'll blow up like, you know, nothing you've ever seen because that stuff goes down somewhere. Sure. It's got to come out, you know. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I, I saw I saw another interview with uh, with Felder from a couple of years ago where he says that they were both that they don't that they don't hang, but they they leave notes for each other at radio stations when they do like morning talk show appearances. So if Felder is promoting a record, he'll leave a little note for Joe. A couple months later, Joe will come get the note and then leave one for Felder and that sort of... Oh, man, that's yeah. so cute. Yeah, right. And it's just like, that That seems to be like the quiet behind the scenes sort of reconciliation you hope for and with such a, you know, sad, heartbreaking story in a, in a book. Yeah. One thing that, that Felder's book and your book have in common is that you both uh, sort of put the spotlight on the real, like, sterile, behind-the-scenes uh, element of the 94 reunion and sort of how, like, that, those, that tour, those shows was kind of a facade because even though everybody was technically getting along, it seems like there wasn't a lot of love uh, between the guys during that tour and they kept to themselves. So when when you were on that tour with Joe, what was your experience with like e I guess I call it Eagles World backstage? Like was did did you see the other guys in the band very often, or was everybody kind of cornered off? I would say very much they were cornered off. Um, in the very beginning, I didn't go to the rehearsals. Uh, maybe one in the very beginning, if I recall. And I don't, no, actually I don't think I went to one. But I knew people, aside from Joe, I knew some people who were there working it. And so I would hear stories. When I went to that soft opening for, for the Hell Freezes Over tour, um, which was like mostly for industry people and friends and family, um, you know, I was backstage and there was a, uh, I don't want to say a friendliness or warmth or um, it, much interaction, 
but certainly more so than I saw at any time for the rest of the tour. And, um, you know, they each had their own trailer and they had their um, families with them. So nobody came into Joe's trailer except for Felder right before the show. I'm sitting there with Joe. It was, you know, he was nervous. I'd never seen him so nervous. Literally oh, never really? in my okay. life. Oh, he was, he, was, he was just catatonic almost, honestly. And I, I felt very helpless because um, I wanted to say something to be encouraging, you know, but he was just, when you're newly sober and um, you have to, you have so much self-doubt and shame. And um, even with all the rehearsals, I, you know, it was his first time uh, sort of back on stage uh, and surrounded by guys who had their shit together, you know. Oh, and, sure. And, yeah. and Joe was a little intimidated, too, by that, you know, uh, Henley's singing voice and Timothy, you know, for one thing, Joe never considered himself, you know, a, a, a great singer. I mean, he, he definitely was good and had his unique sound, but um, those guys had just been knocking it out of the park the whole time he'd been spiraling. So, and he just wanted, he didn't want to disappoint anybody. He didn't want to screw up. And Felder came by and stuck his head in the door and he could see how nervous he was. And he made a little joke. I, I talk about it in my book. Um, and uh, it, it was the first time I, that Joe actually kind of took a deep breath, you know, and he seemed to relax a little bit and then they go out. Um, but, you know, none of the other guys came in. They all sort of kept to themselves a little bit. We saw them backstage and, and um, like I said, there was, you know, uh, what seemed like a normal sort of level of friendliness. And then when the tour started, I, I only would meet up with him like once a month or something. And, oh, okay. But it was, yeah, it was, but it was very, maybe a little bit more than that in the beginning, but by the end of the year, um, but it was very noticeable. And in fact, so noticeable, especially compared to all the other tours we'd been on where it was a very much of a family atmosphere from Herbs um, in uh, New Zealand to uh, Ringo Starr's tours, especially to all the many tours we did with Joe just as a three-piece. Um, you know, everybody uh, hung out together. We ate together, talked together. At the very least, when you're on the elevator together, you're chatting, <laughs> you're acknowledging each other's presence. Yeah. And that's the one memory that stands out more than anything is we we're on the way to a show. We're at this hotel. We get on the elevator. I won't say who, but a one of the other eagles was on. We stop at another floor. Another one of the eagles get on. There are three eagles in the elevator, maybe a road manager or, or assistant or something. There's like six of us. And they didn't look at each other. They didn't greet each other. They were like total strangers. And I'm like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. We walk through the lobby and, and they all got into their separate, you know, cars to go to the, and I don't think they interacted again until they were on stage. Gosh, that's like... There's, it, like, like working in an office building, like before COVID, that's like how I would be at work, getting into an elevator, look at my phone, you know? Yeah, yeah. Nobody had cell phones back then, but I right. guarantee you, everyone would have been looking at them if they'd have had them. Sure, 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 yeah. sure. Did you, did you ever see, um, did you ever meet the, their manager, Irving Azoff? I may have, but I don't have any recollection oh, okay. of it. I yeah. feel like I must have, but I, I, I don't remember... It at all. Yeah, well, maybe he's not that memorable. <laughs> so, <laughs> did, uh, when, before the reunion kicked off, you must have heard, and I, you know, maybe I'm asking you things you can't share, but, uh, did Joe share stories, uh, about his time in the Eagles and, 
you know, what maybe he loved about them or what frustrated him about them? Did he talk a lot about them or were they sort of out of sight, out of mind uh, when he wasn't with them? He talked about them some. I think he uh, chose his words carefully. Yeah, as we all do. <laughs> My impression, but he was, he did tell me things in confidence and I, um, it's been so long that I, I don't even know if I put this in the book. Um, I'm almost certain I didn't actually, I probably would have been afraid of a lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> and I will, I will tell you what I remember. And this is just my, my memory. Um, first of all, whenever he did speak of them, it was with the, um, the emotional vibe that I got was that a lot like the way I talked about my family. With oh, love. Okay. You know, yeah. you never knew if the story, always about people that I love and am very close with, but the story may be, you know, something sweet, something funny or something incredibly hurtful and frustrating. You know, yeah. it was, you know, it just, it sounded like he was talking about his brothers. And so not all the stories were good. Some were funny. I, I think one of the most, when he chose the words very carefully, whenever he was saying something that wasn't positive, yeah. And um, I remember one time him being it, very candid and it came out, what he said came out in a way that was just very unguarded. It was just like a gut reaction. Um, I had asked him something about um, the debauchery and the, and the groupies and the, you know, all of that of being with the Eagles. And it's funny because Joe had a lot of affairs when we were together. Um, I, I say a lot for a rock star Probably not, you know? Yeah. Um, but for a typical couple, most women would have considered, you know, once you get past uh, uh, the digits on one hand, you're, you know, once you get yeah. to half a dozen, you would say a lot. <clears throat> um, but he said, he said with, with complete, um, I want to say disgust, like, like they, he did not sugarcoat this at all. He thought the behavior of the married members of the band screwing around as much as they did was a little despicable. And I don't know if he used that word, but you know, he also followed that up with a comment about maybe the age of some of those oh, backstage girls. Sure. And, and maybe, uh, uh, I mean, I'll tell you straight up, he was disgusted at the use of quaaludes with young girls. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that's not, uh, I don't think you think you're speaking that far out of school because there's a, it's a matter of public record that like a 14 year old girl died at one of Don Henley's parties, you know, and it was, and I think it was a drug overdose and it's, you know, it's, you know, it's one of those things where they don't want to talk about it, but it's like, that's a real thing that was in the newspapers and, you know, a gross of a story as that is, Henley got so mad uh, about the coverage he got that he wrote Dirty Laundry, which yeah. Joe played on, full yeah. circle. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's a great song. Of course, uh, right? <laughs> it's not a great song. And here's yeah. the thing, I will say also, because, you know, this is something that's really interesting to me. I, people are definitely becoming more aware. Yeah. I definitely feel like the pendulum at some points swings way too hard to one. And you have to look at the 70s and 80s in the context of the 70s and 80s. I yeah. lost my virginity at 14, or yeah. at least I tried, with a much older man who the next day, I got him, let me, let me tell you the story real quick. I 
met him. He was a grad student. He's probably 22 years old. I was so attracted to him. He looked just like my favorite soap opera star. I got him drunk. I very consciously, strategically got the man drunk and seduced him at 14. Oh, wow. And the next day, I, was, I went to see him, you know, to say, uh, hi, you know, because I'd, I'd had a wonderful time. Yeah. And he, he was mortified. And I was shocked by that. And later I realized, well, he probably felt horrified at, you know, having been sexual with a 14-year-old. <clears throat> to this day, that incident has never scarred me in any way, shape, or form. Is for all my immaturity, especially when it comes to drugs and alcohol, sexually, um, I always knew exactly who I was and what I wanted. And if something didn't work out the way I wanted, or if something went too far, even at 14, 15, 16, I accepted it as part of the trial and error of becoming um, uh, uh, um, a sexual person and figuring all that out. It, I was not... You know, I have a lot of trauma in my past, but that was not part of it. And there are other women like me out there. There are also a lot of women at 14, 15 who, who um, can get really, really screwed up by that stuff. You don't know which, you, you can't um, vet them when they come in the door. <laughs> you know, you don't yeah. know which, which 14 year olds are actually um, going to enjoy uh, their time backstage getting messed up and, and have a fond memory forever and which ones are actually going to be traumatized by it. Yeah. So, you know, and, and you also can't really control everyone who makes it backstage or to your parties. I'm sure in LA, it's not like they were checking IDs at the door and, and doing right. like uh, maturity tests or, you know, uh, yeah, psychological they're... evaluations of these girls. So um, should, should they have been more careful? Probably, but um, uh I mean, in the context of the time, um, a 14-year-old girl, if she wants to get backstage and, and appear older and seduce a man, you know, uh, not all men are going to be prepared for that or be, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, there's because... some ownership that, that, the, that even young girls have to take, you know, yeah. I knew what I was doing at 14. I absolutely knew what I was doing at 14. 100% I did. Yeah, there's. I've read a lot of, um, I think Kathy Valentine from the Go-Go's just put out a, an autobiography, and she talked about some similar topics like that. And I've read a lot of rock biographies, and, you know, underage girls getting backstage is absolutely a universal theme. It definitely, there is definitely a context of the times uh, to it. But, you know, the unfortunate thing is, is years later is all that stuff, you know, a lot of it is really, you know, there's a very, very dark side to that. Uh, and sometimes it gets taken out of that context. I recall when David Bowie died, there were some nasty websites that, you know, called him a predator and, you know, a pedophile and all these things because there were accounts of him having affairs with, like, 15-year-old girls. And it's just like it becomes weaponized and, and fodder, you know, and, it, and that's a, it's a real bummer. So, think, go ahead. I, that, I, I do want to add, um, I think that, I, I can't think of their names, but I, but uh, some of those groupies that Bowie was sleeping with that were 14 and 15 years old, whatever, um, I think that they have stated that they don't regret that yes, at all. Yes, correct, right. So there's, yeah, so you have to, if you're going to believe all women and respect women's stories, you have to respect the women who don't regret those things and, and would not want to 
give up those memories or those or those um, situations. Um, I do also want to say there's a difference between um, uh, sexual situations and uh, drugs because a 14, 15 year old's brain is not equipped. I don't care how mature you are sexually, you're not equipped to handle drugs at that yeah. age. So that's there is a very distinct line there. Well, that's yeah, that's affecting brain chemistry. Absolutely. Another one that comes to mind is uh, Ray Don Chong, the actress. Uh, just last year or two years ago, said she had an affair with Mick Jagger when she was 15. And then as soon as she said it, she realized, oh, my God, I'm going to get him in trouble. No, 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 no. I knew what I was doing. You know, don't. This isn't me, too. That kind of thing. And and I, I like what you said. It's just like if you believe all women, you have to believe uh, the part where they say, like, I don't regret this. And, I, and I'm glad I did it. You know. Yeah. So... Uh, unfortunately, I don't really have uh, a clever uh, segue to my next topic. I wasn't prepared for this topic, but it's a good <laughs> one. I got a little deep there on you. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's 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 you know it's great it's great to talk about. I'm just uh, you know it it doesn't take much to go over my head. Um, but the next the next thing I, I want really wanted to ask you about because you were sort of in this. You were in this A-list world where you were around a lot of celebrities and you were at these VIP parties. Um, but you were there as a partner of the, one of the VIPs. So what was what was your experience of, I guess, and I hope, please don't take this as disrespectful, but what was it like being like celebrity adjacent? Does that, does that make sense? Oh, no, I was absolutely celebrity adjacent. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, I don't like being in the spotlight, so it was actually a pretty comfortable place for me, you know? Oh, okay. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, um, and Joe was always really uh, good about that like he didn't um when we were together at parties or um like uh with hanging out with um big uh other celebrities like for example when we ran into jack nicholson and pete townsend at the royalton that time you know he didn't just like sort of abandon me or not introduce me he always introduced me he always introduced me as this is my lady christy he always um and then he almost always would follow that up with, um, isn't she beautiful or aren't her freckles beautiful? Or um, I remember he introduced me to uh, Les Paul. Um, oh, I'm from Wisconsin, Les Paul the hero. Oh yeah, he, he really looked up to him a lot. I mean, he, he spoke of him with such reverence. Yeah. And um, it was immediately after that whole thing with the Eagles in, in 90, not with that not, um, working out that we went to see, um, well, Joe had a, a Letterman appearance and we went to see uh, Les play at uh, Fat Tuesdays, I think is the name of the club. And Les put him on stage and there's a video of it on uh, um, YouTube somewhere. But he just, uh, he just adored him. So Joe introduced me to him. Um, and he says, um, this is my lady, Christy. She's from Texas. She's got freckles. You know, he's just being silly. And yeah. Les looks at him like, I don't care if, he, and he says this, like, who care if she has freckles? <laughs> and then he turns to me and he's like, it's lovely to meet you. Like he was giving Joe shit. It was so cute. Like, like his, you know, why are you being so goofy? I don't know. It was funny, but Joe always would introduce me and, and say something sweet. And he always made, um, even if we were fighting sometimes, he just kind of went out of his way to make sure everyone knew that I was his, his life partner. You know, I mean, we, intend we sort of saw ourselves as as a permanent couple and yeah. um yeah so in that respect it was uh it was a great place to be because okay. i didn't have to be in the spotlight and 
And, you know, some celebrities would just, you know, look right through me and others would, um, you know, just stop and talk to me and get to know me. Like um, Harry Nilsson, for example, you know, I mean, he couldn't have been sweeter. And he said, when I met him, he said, Joe has been talking about you all day. He's told me all about you. Wolfman Jack said the same thing. When I would hear that Joe had been telling his friends about me when I was not with him, when I was back home in, in Austin and I'd fly out to LA and he'd introduce me to people like, oh, I've been hearing about you for weeks. Oh my God, it's so nice to meet you. You make Joe so happy. It was wonderful, yeah. Okay. Was there was there uh, a downside to that celebrity experience? Like, did Joe and you have to worry about uh, paparazzi or, or tabloid magazines or, or anything like that? You know, um, not. I can't recall any negative press or any harassment per se. I do know that, like, for Joe was. Um, very careful about his reputation. So for example, when Howard put me on the air, when Howard Stern put me on the air that time, um, by calling the hotel, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Joe had gone to the, Joe and Rick were in the studio, Joe had gone to the bathroom and Rick said, hey, you got to call Joe's new girlfriend. She's a stripper and get her on the air. And so Howard gets me on the air real quick and I start answering questions about our sex life because I'm half asleep and I don't really know who Howard Stern is. And, yeah. and Rick thought that was just insanely funny. Joe was livid when he got back to the hotel. And it was the first time I'd ever really grasped that the things I say and do are going to reflect on a big scale for him, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, he Oh, had, okay, sure. Yeah, like he, when I said that thing about, when Howard asked if we'd had a threesome, ever had threesomes, and I said yes, Part of why I was honest about it was because I thought, well, you know, all guys like, you know, to have that studly image. But Joe was, you know, a little different. He was, he didn't want his sex life to be out there at all. And, um, you know, he was just private about that stuff. And, you know, I remember being in New Zealand and when word would get out that he was there, whether it was at a restaurant. And one time we were just like antiquing and, and, the, and, and somebody recognized him. And all of a sudden in the middle of this, you know, little quiet street, there's people everywhere surrounding us. He would always, he reached through the crowd because they kind of pushed me out and pulled me back in. Like he would always, he was always really great with his fans. Like he would never be rude and say, I don't have time for, I mean, I've heard stories of him being rude, but I, my guess is it, it happened at a time when he was just like really drunk or hungover or something. Yeah. And I did not ever witness him being rude to fans who wanted autographs or who came up to him in stores. I saw him being rude to people randomly like bartenders and um, flight attendants when he was drunk or jonesing, oh, you yeah. know, uh, or super hungover. Um, he could he could just be the biggest jerk in the world. It wasn't frequent that that happened, but he was always very appreciative of his fans. Um, I think he was a little terrified that our drug use and like certain stories, like when I beat the crap out of him or tried to beat him up in the back of that limo. Um, and then the limo driver, of course, was fully aware of what had just taken place. Like he did worry about that stuff getting to the press because he didn't want his fans to know what an addict he was or what a dysfunctional relationship he was in. Yeah. Um, he wanted to keep that stuff private. I mean, 
I think he also, you know, it wasn't just his fans. I think he worried about what his mom would think, you know. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I, I just think of that story in your book about when you're at that campsite and he walks past uh, where the, the other campers were playing Hotel California and, like, his reaction sounded like abject terror. Like, we have to get out of here, you know. Yeah. Like, was, he, was he worried that they were just going to come, they wouldn't leave him alone? Or had he experiences where fans couldn't take a hint to get lost? Or um, or was it because he was intoxicated? My my take on that was that he had been feeling, okay, we, we were on that RV trip to get away from the drugs that had gotten out of control. When I Once I moved in with him, my already spiraling coke addiction just you know, ex exploded. And so, um, like eight months in, he's like, we're going to get an RV. We're going to clean up. We're going to just drive up the coast, see some friends, commune with nature. And little by little, the RV filled up with drugs so that it turned into like this fear and loathing kind of a thing. And, <laughs> um, so, you know, he, he recognized that he was not, the rock star um, at the top of his game that he, his fans expected and wanted. And I, I know that the amount of drugs that we ended up bringing and my, uh, our use of them in just those first, that first week, uh, he was disappointed in himself. He was disappointed in me. He was disappointed in himself. And so, you know, he looked kind of haggard and, it was a very tense day that day that we were climbing. We weren't talking a lot, um, but it was nice to be in Joshua Tree. And so as we're walking back to the RV, I think hearing himself, you know, hearing himself on their boombox, my take on it was always that was a reminder of who he used to be and wasn't oh. anymore. And God forbid they look up and see him and walk over, they're going to realize Oh, he looks like hell. Right. And yeah. His girlfriend looks wired. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he didn't want them to see him in that less than prime state. And I think that it made him feel so bad about where he was in life and with his addictions and with a girlfriend who was clearly out of control that when, as soon as we got back to the RV, he just dumped out a bunch of lines because it's kind of like, well, let's just, you know, go, let's just numb that feeling and, right. and get obliterated, you know? It's really funny you said uh, fear and loathing because I, I can't show you my, uh, my, my updated um, outline here, but I literally pulled the quote of the list of drugs and, and booze that you have in your book and put it right next to that opening paragraph from fear and loathing. And I was going to read both of them and been like, when did you realize you were Hunter S. Thompson? <laughs> we had two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, Five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine, a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, also a quarter tequila, quarter rum, case of beer, pint of raw ether, two dozen amyl. Not that we needed all that for the trip, but once you get locked into a serious drug collection, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. I read Fear and Loathing, I think after I got sober, and I was just like, oh, my God. I was, I was, I, that RV trip, I wonder yeah. if I was possessed by the spirit of Hunter S. Thompson because it was so similar. It yeah. Was, yeah, it was a trip. I haven't read it since. I, I read it that one time, 
uh, so this would have been like 20 years ago or something. I'll, I'll have to put them side by side. Oh my God. That's, yeah, that was just too funny for me. So did, I don't suppose you ever met him. I know he was friends with like Jimmy Buffett of all people. Uh, did Joe, yeah, yeah, did Joe ever know Hunter? That uh, you know of? It's, it's, not that I know of, but it does seem like they should have known each other. Yeah, absolutely. Right? They could have done some damage. And that was Kristen Casey author of Rock Monster, My Life with Joe Walsh. This was uh, part one of our full interview. Part two is coming uh, probably sometime next week. Our discussion in part two moves a little bit away from Joe, and we hear some of her great stories uh, about meeting big-name celebrity rock stars like Bob Dylan, Stevie Nicks, Ringo Starr, plus some uh, lesser known but equally interesting guys like Wolfman Jack and Dave Edmonds. And the second part of that interview, we talk about the other aspect of her book that has been received really well, which is uh, the topic of drug addiction, recovery, and sobriety. Kristen has some really great insight into the issue of drug addiction and recovery, and I really appreciate that she took some time to expand upon those topics uh, in part two. So, so keep your ears open for that. That's coming up soon. I just got to say thanks one more time to Kristen for stopping by. It really meant a lot uh, uh, as the first guest of this show to me. So thank you, Kristen. Hopefully you'll come back soon. And how many times can I say this one? Buy her book. It's really good. It's a if, if you're a rock and roll fan, if you're a Joe Walsh fan, Eagles fan, there is so much great stuff in here, and it's a very accessible, fun read. I can't recommend it enough. And again, paperback copies are now available. She has signed copies available. You can find out all the information for that on her website, which is uh, kristencasey.com. You, you can find her social media there, at Ms. Kristen Casey on Twitter. You can follow her on Facebook, too. Once you buy her book and follow her on all that social media, you should then make sure you're following us on social media. I'm over at Play That Podcast, all one word, on Twitter. And if you search Play That Rock and Roll or Play That Podcast, all one word, on Facebook, you'll find our page there as well. And we're also on YouTube. The audio version of this podcast it should be available almost everywhere podcasts are available now. I know we're on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, and wherever we're not, I am in the process of working to get us there. So we'll be there soon. <laughs> if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, I would say please, please, please leave us a five-star rating and a nice review. This show is still very young. We're less than a year old, so any uh, reviews and positive ratings are, are so important and much appreciated um, in this first year as we're just finding our feet. So if you can just take a moment to do that, I would really appreciate it. That's a fantastic way to provide non-financial support for the show, and that's all the support I'm interested in, by the way. Uh, non-financial and the and the best the top four ways you can do that is a listen to the show b recommend the show to a friend c uh, follow us on social media and d leave us a nice review over on 
Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you can leave reviews. All of that is very much appreciated. So with that, I just want to say uh, thanks again for listening. Uh, I hope you had a good time. Keep an eye out for part two. That's coming soon. And one last time, Joe Walsh, play us out. Absolutely one of my favorite podcasts. Got to give him a listen. Yes! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.